Hello, beloved survivors. In April 2020, Adrian and I were honored by Auburn Seminary. We were selected as recipients of their 2020 Lives of Commitment Award, which celebrates the deep resilience of women leaders who embody moral courage in spaces where injustice threatens hope and human wholeness. Our lives of commitment to justice were highlighted alongside five other amazing women, Gina Breedlove, Rabba Sarah Hurwitz, Lynn Twist, Holly Fogel, and Monica Estrada Guzman. The following month, all of the honorees were convened in a live event called the Auburn Conversation, which was moderated by Minister Candace Simpson in a deep discussion of moral courage in the times we are living through now. Adrian was still on sabbatical, so I had the honor of representing both of us in the conversation. The event took place on Tuesday, May 26th, which was also the first night of the uprising in Minneapolis, which would ignite a global movement to abolish the police. You can watch the live event online, and we'll link to that in the show notes. For now, we invite you to enjoy the audio recording, this depthful dialogue on how we experience the divine, how we hold power as women, and how we organize for a safe and liberated future for everyone. We want to express our deepest gratitude to Reverend Dr. Catherine R. Henderson and everyone at Auburn Seminary for including us in the celebration of courage and hope. Good evening, friends. It's so good to be with you in this space. You're going to hear from incredible women of moral courage tonight and you'll get to know a little bit more about the work that they do and the futures that they envision. These are women who touch all corners of the world and come from all walks of life. Medicine woman Gina Breedlove is a vocalist, composer, actor, and sound healer from Brooklyn, New York. Autumn Brown is a mother, organizer, theologian, artist, and facilitator. Holly Fogel is the co-founder and executive director of Nido de Esperanza, a faith-based early childhood program for families with infants and toddlers. And Monica Estrada Guzman is the program director of Nido de Esperanza. Rabba Sarah Hurwitz is co-founder and president of Yeshivat Maharat, the first institution to ordain Orthodox women as clergy. And Lynn Twist is an author and activist and founder of the Soul of Money Institute and co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance. So there is a lot of power even on these airwaves tonight and we wanna get right into it and hear from them. Um, as you have questions or you might find that you have questions, um, there is a button down at the bottom. You'll see it says Q&A and there are two little dialogue boxes. Um, so as your questions come up, please do share them with us so that we might be able to um, hear what our honorees have to say to it uh, later on. So let us just jump right into it. Um, all of the women who are gathered with us tonight um, are women of moral courage coming from uh, different uh, faith journeys and different faith communities. And we wanted to honor that these are women who 
uh, have so much to say about the divine and the sacred. And so we wanted to offer Octavia Butler's prophetic text, The Parable of the Sower. And in this text, she writes, create no images of God, except the images that God has provided. They are everywhere, in everything. God is change, seed to tree, tree to forest, rain to river, rivers to sea, grubs to bees, bees to swarm. From one, many, from many, one. Forever uniting, growing, dissolving, forever changing. The universe is God's self-portrait. So, for our honorees tonight, we'd like to hear from you. Where do you experience divinity? What feels sacred to you? What are the wondrous images that you were holding on to in this moment? And we can start with Monica. Hi, good evening. Um, for me, I think it's just having the ability and the privilege to create space for others, just like others created space for me and my mother. Earlier, earlier on in our journey as immigrants in the United States and to be able to do that, to be able to create a space where you can hear, you can see, you can acknowledge um, someone's experience, joy, sorrow, or even the grace of seeing one of your littles um, come into the space and have reached a developmental milestone or mm -hmm. hearing your name for the first time utter um, from the lips of one of your littles. I think that's where I find the sacred and just those small joys that we see in everyday life um, and sharing that space and creating space for others. Mm. Rapa Sarah, where do you experience the sacred these days? Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with these powerful women. Thank you. Um, you know, I feel like these days it's a trite answer, but I, I must give it um, because this is what's on my heart and mind where the, the easy and quick answer is in kindness, but I wanna explain a little bit. Um, I'm so similar to you, Monica. So it's the holiday of Shavuot coming. It's um, the, the gathering of the harvest festival. It's summertime. And it's a holiday actually that doesn't have a, a lot of ritual, but we do read the, uh, the book of Ruth during the holiday. And uh, there's a, a question of why do we read the book? What does this book have to do with this holiday? And there's many answers, but one of the, uh, the traditions is the book is read to put on display kindness because at the core and center to that book are the multiple uber acts of kindness that every character presents. And uh, for me, that's a animating foundational principle. Uh, my kids make fun of me because I tell them it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how, you know, how good you are at math, uh, what I care about at the end of the day is that you're kind. And I, I push it so much that I think it's gonna be written on my gravestone um, because that's what they hear from me over and over again. And I also, it's what I see now at this time 
of struggle and despair um, at the beginning of March when my community was, was uh, suddenly in crisis and thinking about how to navigate this new normal of social distancing and loss and disease. And um, I was amazed to see how my community mobilized. And within minutes, there was a whole connective group of people who uh, set up a WhatsApp group and to this day continues to shop for people, to uh, get groceries to those who cannot leave. Uh, leave their ha their homes and and to me I see the divine every day in the small and big acts of kindness that occur every single day. Thank you, Gina. How about you? Where are you experiencing the divine these days? I'm in a practice. Um, um, hi, everyone. Greetings, family. I'm so grateful to be with you all. I, um, I'm in this practice, uh, Sister Candice, um, that I started about 10 years ago. I, um, and for 10 years, I've been trying to read the Bhagavad Gita. And so I'll take like one paragraph and spend like a lot of time with it because it's that kind of glorious text. And, but I got caught in this, um, on this reading on this word of do all things as worship um, mm -hmm. of Krishna talking to Arjuna, do all things as worship and then you will be free. And I have a thing about freedom. Like it's very personal to me. Um, um, and what I've come to think of as true freedom. What is true freedom? And, um, and so I'm in this practice that everything, you know, when I'm washing dishes, when I'm, you know, sitting and reading, when I'm speaking, um, when I'm purchasing my groceries, like really to be in practice, to be in presence. And, um, and so I find the divine in those moments. And um, lately, of course, um, with um, where we are all standing and what I have come to think of as in a deeply dangerous opportunity, um, I'm seeing so much divine exchange. Um, and it is a bomb for my spirit and kindness and thoughtfulness and mindfulness um, presence. And also, I have the daily grace of having a new baby in my home. I have a grandbaby um, who's two months old, and, um, and I do mornings with him <laughs> ostensibly to give my daughter some time to rest, but really, it's so I could take my baby <laughs> and have this incredible, like, three or four hours with this being that is deeply and indeed divine. So that's my offering. What a gift. I miss babies. I can't <laughs> miss babies. Um, Autumn, how about you? Where are you seeing the design these days? Mm. Thank you for this question, Candice. And, um, and also thank you for opening us with um, the great Octavia Butler's prophetic text. I really appreciate it. Um, as a deep nerd, um, and, um, yeah, and thank you all for the answers you've shared so far. I'm, I'm actually over here taking notes on what everyone is saying, just so that I can paste it all over my wall. Um, I think for me, um, the divine is 
most present for me in moments of passing. Um, and so I, I feel the divine inside of grief. And I think for me, just in my own personal life, I don't know that I really even truly understood the presence of the divine until I myself experienced um, deep loss and entered that liminal space that comes the, when we're in, in grief, that, that feeling of being between worlds. Um, for me, that is, that is where I find it. And, and then that means that in this time, um, there's a, it feels like it's a part of this heightened energy that's, that's all around us. And um, today, um, I feel very filled with that sense. Um, I'm, as I shared with the, my fellow honorees before we went live, um, I'm, I'm calling in here today from South Minneapolis and, um, and just about 14 blocks from where George Floyd was murdered last night by the police. And, um, and our city is in deep mourning and in shock and in rage. And in all of that, I believe the divine is present. I almost wanna um, invite us just to pause because this death feels so fresh and it is one of many deaths um, that seems to be unending because of the racist, sexist, transphobic, homophobic systems that have us all entangled. So why don't we just take a moment to breathe Ashe, thank you for lifting his name. In times like these, we do need to be thinking about what we hold on to, those sacred images. So um, Lynn and Holly, I would love to hear from you where you are experiencing the divine. Why don't we start with Lynn? Where are you feeling those sacred images in this moment? Um, wow. Well, the divine, I'll, I'll answer that, and the sacred images in many ways are, are all one, but um, I was thinking about how um, there's a proximity to death now that we haven't had in our culture, uh, and in a way, an acceptance, um, you know, a, not that it's something we accept with, um, without grief, but that we will die. Mm -hmm. If I can put it that way, um, it, the proximity um, that is, depends on your age, but it isn't that common to be proximate to death. Uh, and that I think is a powerful, uh, you know, tragic yet unfortunate, yes, 
but also a powerful part of what's happening. And there's a divinity in that, running through that uh, presence in our culture. Um, I would also say um, I work in, in the Amazon rainforest with indigenous people. So naturally for me, the natural world, every single living, breathing part of this world, the community of life, the earth herself is breathing in and out and the divinity in the breath, the inhale and the exhale of all of us on the screen, all the people listening, that we breathe together. We are biologically uh, one. And that is also much clearer uh, and more evident because of this virus. Um, the give and take that comes with the breath, uh, that sweet territory of, of divinity you feel when you really stop and be with the breath. Um, sacred images for me come up when I think about walking through the Amazon with some of my indigenous elders and shamans that I have great reverence and respect for who live primarily in the spirit world and, um, and the material world is not that much a part of who they, uh, who they think they are, who they see. And walking through the, the forest with a, a man I'm thinking of right now named Munari Ushiwa, the careful walking with his machete cutting the trail uh, ahead of us, and a moment when he stopped, this is just what you, when you said sacred image, this is what came up for me. Uh, he stopped and turned to me and he said, can you feel them? Can you hear them? Are they touching you? And of course, the, most people when they go to the Amazon, they're thinking about mosquitoes and bugs and you know, all that. But what he was talking about are the millions and millions of souls. Can you feel them? Can you hear them? Are they touching you? The millions of souls. And for him, every single leaf and twig and bug and butterfly and animal and bird and gigantic tree and raindrops and mist and had a spirit was divine. Um, and that experience of the sacred reverence of not just the rainforest, but this world, um, every single part of it, including my desk, you know, and it's made from a tree. Um, this computer that I'm looking at that makes it possible for me to, to see you came from the earth, the, the Coltrane, the, the metals. So it's all part of the natural world that is, you know, just filled with the divine, um, energy in life. Um, and then I must say, I'm, um, I feel the divinity in, in women, uh, that there's an emergence of women, that this event, this gathering that Auburn has made possible, it's not that men don't have divinity, but there's a, there's a surge and experience I'm having of the emergence of women through this special time that the female archetype in all of us is starting to show itself in the kindness that's been acknowledged, in the compassion, in the grief, in the, it, it's, it's so palpable now. So I feel the divinity coming through uh, the female archetype, the yin energy 
uh, and of course, from women. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Holly? And I think just to build, Lynn, on what you were saying, you know, I think the divine for me has always been much easier to find in nature than in a grand cathedral. Um, and I think these days, given that we can't be in a grand cathedral anyway, that's probably good. Um, but, you know, to me, it has been just a simple caterpillar that somehow ends up on a third floor windowsill. And you think like, how did you get here with those little legs? And what force, you know, brought you to my windowsill on this morning? Or, you know, a, a little brown bird that has been in the city forever. And um, all of a sudden I'm paying attention to the feathers and the song. And I think the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about is silhouettes, right? Of a tree in the daytime with the light, there's so much beauty and so much complexity with all those leaves. But as the sun sets behind it, it becomes very simple um, and still very strong. And I, I've been thinking a lot about as people, right? If we could sort of sometime lay aside all the beauty and the complexity of our differences and just think about the simplicity of those silhouettes because it's, it's really soul to soul. And if we could think about that and see each other, just as my soul welcomes your soul and the light in me recognizes the light in you, um, that we might really be able to create a better world. So that's where I'm feeling the divine these days. Wow. Um, I forgot for maybe 30 seconds that I was the moderator of this conversation because I'm just so full emotionally. Um, and, you know, as each of you were speaking, I felt, you know, kind of this, this pull to just run and wave my hand um, because certainly we're, we're, we're dancing on some divine frequency tonight. Um, so I'm so thankful for um, your responses and your thoughtfulness. Um, so we, we did it the, uh, the organized way, and now we're going to move into chaos, because oh. why not invite some chaos? So as you feel led, um, I want you to respond to this question. Um, I won't be prompting you, but um, when you're ready, you know, just go for the chaos of, of when the spirit leads you to, to offer something. Um, you know, Holly, you spoke about building that better world. And um, one thing that we need in order to build a better world is an honest evaluation of the power and the assets that we have. And we all hold some sort of power. And by virtue of us being in this digital space even, um, we hold a certain kind of power and access and influence. Um, and so I'd love to hear as the spirit leads you if you could tell us of a time when you used your power for good, the time that you used your power for good. So as the spirit leads, we'd love to hear from you. I'll jump in because I struggled <laughs> with this question. And I think one of the reasons why I struggled is I couldn't get past Spider-Man, Superman image of a superhero with hands on hips and a cape flying. And so often women and, and myself associate power with a superhero kind of power. And so when I first was thinking about your question, I thought, I don't have power. I'm not a superhero. <laughs> um, and, and that made me think about 
how we as, as women and as leaders have to really harness our power and how important it is to own it and to put it on display to inspire others. Um, there was one time that I very early on in my career, right after I'd been ordained and I'd suddenly found myself running this new institution to ordain Orthodox women. And it was always my dream to not only become, well, I didn't know it was my dream to become a, a, a rabbi, but it was always my dream to, to once I, I was down that path to make it possible for others. And there was a, a moment where I didn't think I could do it. I couldn't find the money. We couldn't find the students. Everything seemed so dismal. And I remember one of my mentors saying to me, you know, if only you were a little bit louder, if only you spoke maybe a little bit more emphatically. And for a little bit, I took that to heart. And then I realized if only I was just me. And when I fully became who I am and was able to speak my power, which maybe is sometimes softer than what other people expect. Uh, sometimes it's not soft, <laughs> but um, I think I have a, a manner that, that is unexpected in terms of, of the work and the job and the ceiling busting that I try to do. And I think owning that, that um, owning that and then modeling that for my students that it's okay to own all kinds of power and to display it in all different ways, I think is my gift. <laughs> um, because I think it will inspire them to not necessarily go on to start and found their institution, but to seek within and to, to discover what their unique power is and then go for it. Thank you. The image that came to me as you were speaking was um, a candle lighting other candles. That's the image that I got. You know, the, the candle does not get extinguished because it shares its power with someone else. So, and I do have a candle sitting here. So that's probably part of why I'm thinking that way. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi Sarah. Others, how are you using your powers for good? I get to um, be in practice with that every day um, because um, I've been sounding into folk every day. So I'm thinking about breath and, and what unites us and um, the interconnectedness of, of all joined by breath and sound. So sound is powerful medicine, sound. And I share sound like yes, daily, especially um, now as there's so much need, of course, right? The spiritual first responders, as I think of folk who do energy work and healing work and holding work and listening in, in, in space and um, laying hands through these um, virtual, um, these virtual, in these virtual ways and laying sound. And, and it is always about good. It's always about an intention to, to lift um, to um, release, to reclaim. Um, soul retrieval is a deep part of 
um, a center of soul retrieval in my work and and um, and also guiding folk to use the power that is inherent the consciousness inherent in the human voice on their own bodies you know um, and so I'm so grateful Candace that I, I that that's what I um, I'm graced to do daily to use the power of my sound for good Um, yeah. I, I, um, my, my answer was so obvious. I, I was embarrassed to share it, but now I think I will. <laughs> but one of my superpowers is fundraising <clears throat> and training fundraisers and moving money away from fear and towards, towards love. And I've been doing it since I was five years old. I've raised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, probably a billion dollars. And um, I, I train fundraisers. I've trained 50,000 fundraisers in, you know, like, I don't know how many countries. And I love asking for money. I absolutely love asking for money. A lot of people don't like that, but I love it because I know that for me, there's no higher use of my, um, of my life than to facilitate the reallocation of the world's financial resources away from fear, overconsumption weaponry, destruction, war, um, overconsumption of, of everything, um, greed, to facilitate the reallocation of those financial resources away from fear and greed and war and, and evil and destruction of the environment and each other and reallocate those same races towards, those same resources towards what we love the health and well-being of our children, the health and well-being of our communities, the health and well-being of our, of our environment, the health and well-being of all children of all species for all time. So pretty much every day of my life, I have uh, reallocated financial resources. And I think fundraising is holy work. I think it's sacred work. I think it's the center of the bullseye of what we often call nonprofits, but I call them social profits because what we're generating is a profit, a social profit. Uh, which is the most important profit you can generate. And I consider us social profits, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, um, generating a social profit for the world. Um, but we can't do that without financial resources. And there's, we, you know, this is so obvious with this pandemic, suddenly the government has trillions of dollars to, to suddenly find but not for hunger, you know, eight months ago, not for the Head Start programs, not for stopping violence against women, not for gun, you know, suddenly we don't have enough for Social Security, we, we can't afford anything. And then suddenly trillions of dollars is available. And it's just created. We just create it. So we can't, after, after this pandemic, we can never say, we don't have the money because everybody saw, everybody knows we just create it. Anyway, I did a little bit of a soapbox there. Sorry, but I, I must say it's a superpower for me. And I have trained thousands and thousands and thousands of people to let go of their fear of, of asking for money so that the, the, the work that everybody wants funded has the money that it needs to do its job. So, um, that's my um, answer to that question. Thank you. <laughs> As I hear all of you, I was inspired to share and coming like, where does our power come from? 
and it wouldn't be right to not give homage to those who do, um, who did. So for me, is my power came from the words my mom and grandmother whisper into my being as a baby. In the existence into my adulthood and teenage of the, the words that they spoke into me gave me life, gave me truth. And these same words I'm able to use to encourage the same whispers that were whisper into my soul, into my heart, into my being, into my babies, into our babies. And the words of hope, of empowerment, of resilience, I'm able to speak to our families and share that and learn from them and be able to hear their words, their whispers that come into the space to fill our virtual rooms now and being able to be fueled by them and empowered by them. That's where my power comes from, the words. Mm, wow. I have to jump in here. I'm so excited by all of your superpowers. <laughs> um, I, I think that my superpower is, I th I'm a very powerful person and I think I have multiple powers, but I think one of my special powers is creating energy fields. Um, and I, I think I've been able to do this from a really young age, actually, if um, the stories that my sisters share about me are any indication. But, um, but in my work, I, I have been creating energy fields of transformation when I'm in spaces with others. And, um, and there's something that happens that sort of, um, no matter what the physical space is, that I, I feel the, the space between my heart and another person's heart shrinks. And the way that I've been using that power, especially over the last few years, is to really open white people to transformation um, and to a deep transformation in relationship to their um, understanding of their racial and socioeconomic identity and their role and what is required of white people at this time. Um, and I would say that the, the, that, that is my work. And I think the, the place that I experienced the most power really in the last year of my life was when I turned that power on myself and had to really actively start creating an energy field of transformation around my own body in order to liberate myself from inside of some very frightening conditions that were happening in my own life. And inside that, I still had to practice love and practice a willingness to, to take risks and to be loved and love while also generating this energy field around myself that was transforming me and protecting me at the same time. And I think my ability to do that to myself is perhaps even why I'm able to articulate it now as the thing that I'm doing when I'm, when I'm doing the work in, in, in the rooms with the folks that I'm called to work with. Um, and 
I think that that power has taught me that it is possible to protect ourselves and love ourselves at the same time. And it's possible to protect each other and love each other at the same time. And I think in part because of the way racial capitalism functions on our, on our minds and on society, we tend to think that we can only do one or the other. Um, but I, I'm increasingly coming to believe that it's possible to do both. Possible and necessary. Thank you, Autumn. Okay. And I think so what you all, yeah, so much of what you all said resonates with me. I think there's a Rumi quote that I love that says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field and I'll meet you there. Yes. I think oh. my superpower is meeting people in those fields and connecting people. And I, I really relate to what you said, Rabba Sarah, where, you know, I think I spent most of my 20s and 30s with a narrative of, you know, I was a kid that grew up in deep rural poverty in the Appalachian foothills. And I was kind of lucky to be in a room. That's how I felt. I was lucky to be in this room. And then I moved into a very male dominated career. And again, I would often be the only woman in a room and felt like, well, I'm lucky to be in this room. Right. And my voice was a very different voice um, than most in that room. And so I think it's, it's taken me um, into my 40s to be on a journey of recognizing that I have extraordinary power. I mean, simply being a US citizen grants me extraordinary power. Um, being white and being able to be in a room, right? And then looking around and say, who else should be in this room? And what other voices are not represented here? I mean, that's a power that you know, we need to use more and more as we have access to these rooms and to widen those doors and widen those windows and widen that conversation so that we all meet in that field somewhere out there and stop finger pointing, right, of the right and the wrongdoings, um, but instead say, let's meet in that field and let's seek truth together um, as women, as leaders, as, as souls. Thank you. Um, I, I wanna repeat something that you said because I, I think it'll be important for um, how we move into this next question. And also, I, it was just so good, Holly, that I wanna capture it again. Um, you, you talked about um, going from feeling like you were lucky to be in a space to using that, um, using that awareness to also look around and say, who else should be here? Who else has something to offer? Who else's visions and dreams and expertise might get us all free? Um, so I. I just love that idea of moving from, I'm so lucky to be here to, you know, opening up that room. Um, and so this is our last question. And then we're gonna switch into the Q and A from some of the folks who are um, participating digitally. Uh, you, all, you all are part of dynamic communities across the globe. Right now we're touching all parts of the United States. Um, in our own ways, from being in our own little corner, in our own little chairs. And you've witnessed great beauty and heartbreaking tragedy and everything between and in beyond. So using that embodied knowledge of what you've witnessed through your work, what would you say is necessary for a healthy and safe and liberated future for all? A liberated present too, if we could make that more urgent. 
what's necessary for a healthy, safe, and liberated future. You know, I was watching um, a TED talk recently and the woman who's a woman's rights activist said, if we all would think like mothers in times of uncertainty, the world would be a better place. And I thought, well, this is certainly a time of uncertainty. Um, and you know, what she went on to say was, it's how do we prioritize the needs of many versus the whims of a few? And I think, you know, in the work that Monica and I do in Washington Heights in Northern Manhattan, that's been a community that's incredibly hard hit of fam with families. And yet, right, there's enormous resiliency in these mothers because they think like mothers. And they think about making sure their children are fed before they eat themselves. They figure out how to make, you know, mask for their neighbor with the little fabric they have. They figure out how to make two trips to cart really heavy groceries to a friend that's too sick to come. And because they come at everything um, in their world as a mother, I think it just sort of, it transcends then the mindset and shifts things to say, how do I nurture? How do I care? How do I love? deeper and not just for me or for my children, but recognizing that all of these children are my children and right, this whole earth is my earth. Um, so I would, I would love to see more mother-based decision-making and more female leadership, I think, in that. Because I think intuitively as women, we come at it from a place of prioritizing many, not the needs of a few. Um, I, I, I love that so much. I just want to repeat it in my own way. <laughs> um, I, I've, I have a name for this century, the 21st century. I call it the Sophia century, the century when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come into balance. And also a, a century, this 100-year cycle following the 20th century, which was defined by war and the fear of war for 100 years, that this century being the first hundred years of the third millennium, if you step back pretty far, it's the beginning of the third millennium. You know, we have a little bit of a rocky start here, but um, mother, the mother, to speak of mothers, is speaking very directly and very powerfully to us in, in the form of global warming, in the form of climate change, and even I think in the form of the virus. Um, to humble this uh, species called human beings to find our rightful role in relationship with her and one another. Um, and that, the, that mother energy that comes from the natural world, um, that, um, that unbelievable power that comes from love, even gravity, you know, when I'm trying to walk up a steep hill here in San Francisco, I realize, oh, it's gravity. It's the mother's love for me. She wants to keep me close. <laughs> You know, um, if we think of it as love and, um, you know, love is always the way through. I think we all, everyone knows that, but then how do we implement that? And there's a, a couple things that I think are really showing up in this space now where we're listening more deeply, we're quieter, we're, we're as I said before, we're, so much is being revealed and um, there's a new economic model that's very feminine that I think could be such a powerful next evolutionary leap for our culture. You probably know about it called um, 
Donut Economics by Carol Raworth, and it's based on feminine principles of female archetype, caring for one another, limits on what we use from the earth, and limits on what we will not let anyone go below this particular level of care, uh, of equity, of, of uh, food justice, of, of gender equality, of racial equality, that there's an inner circle, no one can go below that. And then the outer circle is the limits of how much we can take from the earth and how we need to live together. And it's so feminine, this, an economic model that's feminine, which, which is eco-eco, ecology, economics, they, they are related. They all, that word eco comes from home. And who tends the home, both the economy and the ecology better than anyone, um, the mother in the form of men and women, uh, that energy I think is, is, is where we wanna go. And I also would say that in many ways, the pandemic is a pregnancy, a, a birth canal to the new future that we, that we all can bring forth as, as tragic and harmful and much suffering as there is, there's also something being born and it's painful. Um, so there's something beautiful about what you said, Holly, and it made me think about the mother energy, which we all carry, men and women, but particularly uh, familiar to those of us who are women. Thank you, Lynn. I wanna jump in um, just on this theme. Um, I think it was Arundhati Roy's uh, piece that came out recently talking about the pandemic as a portal. Um, I love birth canal also, just because I love vaginas. Um, and <laughs> and um, the transformation of the, of the birth canal. And I think that what that has me thinking about is um, that there's, you know, in, in the birth process, there's this unique dance that unfolds between um, the body of the person who's birthing and the body of the child that's being birthed. And it's like this dance between um, surrender and agency. And that feels like such a relevant lesson to me in this time that if, if we think about the pandemic as a portal that we are all collectively moving through together. That means that we are also in this dance between surrendering to the change that is unfolding and inevitable while also remaining in our agency that we are still decision makers in the process and that, that the more that we awaken to our power and awaken to our agency, the more likely we survive the portal journey. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, as uh, one of the things that we uh, tend to sort of repeat in the field of organizing work that I come from is that it is the people who are on the margins of society who are already surviving on the margins who um, have the solutions that we need because they're already having to iterate and survive inside of a space that was constructed without them in mind or actively constructed to um, get rid of them. And, and so thinking in that way, 
to me, it feels like a, a useful reminder too that if that inside our agency, we are very well positioned to lead ourselves through the portal. When when we're when we're really in our agency and right relationship with our bodies, minds, and our communities, that we are very well positioned to survive, um, if we can also surrender the conditions that brought us to the edge of the portal. This is all so good and juicy and rich. Um, and we have to move to the next question. And so uh, the three friends who did, get, who did not get a chance to answer this last one, um, I do want to privilege the question from the audience um, because it is also a very good and juicy and rich question. Um, so this question comes from the audience and the question is, what do you need as women who are doing such good in the world? How can we be in an interdependent relationship where we give to you as healers? So what do y'all need? Anything from like the practical, like I need post-its to all of I'll the answer things. This question. I'll answer this question because uh, I, I was thinking about this in relation to your previous question as well. And I think, I think that it's a good summary of what many of us have been talking about, which is that we, what we need is we need each other. We need to be nourished and nurtured by each other. And I, I premise that on there's a, a rabbinic tale, a midrash um, about a, a, a group of people on a boat and uh, the boat goes out to sea and there's a, a man, because obviously it's a man in these parables, um, who takes out a drill and he starts drilling under his seat. And the passengers look at him shocked and say, what are you doing? And the passenger says, the man says, what's it to you? I'm not planning on drilling under your seat. I'm just drilling under my seat. And I think that that's a, a wonderful image because if we all start drilling under our own seat without thinking about others, without understanding how to nourish and nurture others, we're all gonna drown. And so what I need, and I think what our world needs in this moment and in general is a trust um, and respect, a deep trust and deep respect of others and a recognition that we're we're, we're in this world and we, we can't drown and uh, we can't drown each other's boats. We gotta throw each other life vests and, and all sorts of ways to, to breathe. And um, there are gonna be days where I am down in the dumps and I'm gonna rely on somebody else to lift me up. And there's days where I'm gonna know that I can lift somebody else up and that's also gonna nourish and, feel me and make me feel better. Um, and so put your drills away. <laughs> Keep the boat afloat. I am getting so much of what I've been needing um, from sitting and um, talking and exchanging and listening to everyone on this panel. It reminds me um, the power of reflection, of um, of community. Um, I am a solo practitioner, and I um, can get a little. Um, I, and, and also, I, something that Lynn said earlier really spoke to me. Before the arrival of my grandson, I spent a lot of time walking in the world in spirit. 
you know, um, I have perfected not running red lights and being able to be in my body. I mean, some real, some real, um, of course, day to day of being here. And I do spend a lot of time talking, listening. I come out of my sleep talking to spirit. It is uh, my life and has been my life for a very long time. Um, and to sit with real, real humans, <laughs> like some human spirits, <laughs> and to hear your voices and to um, see the shared, um, the, the things that we share and the like-minded spirits has been very uh, nourishing for me. And so I would say more community and opportunities and thinking about how to create that and have that um, for myself. And also um, sitting and sharing and some cross-pollination of the work that we do and how do we meet in, um, and touch hands with each other. And um, let me hear about what you do and how does what I do and how may that be of service to what you do. Sound um, can go into places where words won't go, can't go, because we can get caught on a word. And sound can penetrate the body and, and the spirit and the heart, to borrow from chakra science, the heart chakra, the solar plexus, and, um, and create spaces and openings for folk. Um, to find their way. And so how does that work inform raising money? You know, all of the ways in which folk get caught in this. It's too long to get into, but I mean, I do some raising, some fundraising as well, and I understand how folks constrict and, and what can happen to the body. So I'm, I'm curious about that, like all of us together on this call and then in the, um, the interwoven communities that we all belong to. Like, how do we all meet in a room? right, and bring our medicines to be of service to this moment. Um, and that's just something I'd love to talk more of in mind. Thank you. Man, that's like a really good question. Talk about having to sit a minute and just think about it. Um, I think for me, it's like creating and holding space and holding so much that sometimes it is okay to ask for that same space to be held for you and to be heard to be li to listen to perhaps have like an anxiety attack with a friend or just like crying and just doing those things um because of so much hurt and so much that we hold um i need a gentle reminder that i don't have to hold it in my body i don't have to hold it alone but finding that or not sinking so much into solitude or into quiet because I may need 24 hours to heal from eight consecutive groups um, two days a week um, to holding that space. And even you know the tension that you feel going out, um, I think that like I'm allowed to also have someone breathe life back into me, to come and resuscitate my heart, to feed me, to heal me, I feel like that's one of the challenges for myself, being someone that it's a giver who cares for others, that I need to be okay with saying, hey, I need you. Um, I need you to check in on me. I need you to feed me, remind me to breathe and to take a moment of pause, um, especially right now. Otherwise, you know, I feel like I could probably hit a wall. <laughs> um, you know, it could happen like for all of us. So I think for that, it's just, um, having others create space um, for, for me um, and just sharing that same compassion of being, um, opening my heart to be able to say it like I need it to, in order to continue to thrive and to live and to breathe and to give. 
Awesome. Autumn, Lynn, and Holly, we do have a few minutes and we'd love to hear, what do you need in this moment? You know, I can be an impatient person. I, um, my, my minister's always like, I'm praying for your patience. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I want to be more patient because there's so much to do in this world. Um, and so I think sometimes impatience is a good thing, right, in my frustration. Um, you know, and I, I think where I, um, what I need is for everyone to just say, what, what is a small action I can do tomorrow? Um, and I think sometimes we all can get stuck to say, I need to devote my life to some great cause. And I mean, that's fantastic if people can do that, but sometimes people need to pay rent. Um, and, and that's pretty understandable, right? So to me, it's, I, I think it's for all of us to take a small action, a small step that propels us forward for whatever cause we believe in. So, you know, it's send a pack of diapers, you know, read a book, um, check in on an elderly friend. But I think this notion of once we start small actions, it's hard to stop them. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and so I guess my, my hope for all of us is to keep urging small actions that then culminate in, you know, as Mother Teresa would say, great love. Um, but I think this notion of small steps forward collectively would be wonderful. This is a, such an interesting question to be ending with. Um, I think I am still, a, a couple of years ago, I entered like one of the deepest stages of burnout I've ever experienced in my life. And, um, and I am still learning how to rest. And so I think out of, in, in my own integrity, I have to say to you and to myself, um, because I haven't learned it yet, that I need, that is what I need. And I need to keep resting. Um, I love that we're ending with this and I know our time is up. So I'll just say, um, I think one of the, the gifts of being what I call a proactivist, um, which is my way of talking about what I do, an activist for, uh, not against, uh, is to know that I have the power um, to hospice the death of the old structures and systems that no longer serve us, and the power to midwife the new structures and systems that can. And to keep in touch with that generative source, um, for me, I've been burned out many a time, but I always know that the burnout is really because I'm disconnected from source in my, in my world. When I'm connected to source, I, I, I can do almost anything. Uh, and, I, and if I stay clear. So to stay connected with source, to stay connected to God, knowing that it's not me, that I'm an instrument of something greater than I can ever understand, and to play that hospice midwife role wherever I can when I see that something's ready to go, not to attack it, but to help it die uh, gracefully and with nobility and dignity. Uh, and what wants to be born to, if I can see it and it's true for me and I can feel it, to midwife that into existence or to be helpful. Um, and both hospicing and midwives, midwifery are both act acts of witness and love, I would say. So to stay the witness 
the instrument and not think that it is me. Amen. Thank you, beloveds, for offering uh, what you have. If we have accomplished nothing else tonight, you all have modeled in so many different ways, so many beautiful ways, how to say what you need. And that is such a holy, holy, holy thing that everyone should be able to do, but particularly women who do this kind of work. And so I thank you for modeling this, not just for those who are watching tonight, but also for me. Thank you. I selfishly say thank you for modeling, asking clearly and, and, and just with such passion and conviction for what you need. It has been a joy and a delight to share even this digital space with you. I'm looking forward to the day when we can be together and give each other hugs with consent. May it be so. <laughs> Cannot wait. I'm a hugger, so this is like, I, I almost want to hug my computer in this moment. <laughs> thing I do with my grandchildren, I get a pillow and I go like this. I love you. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> Thank yeah. you so much. I miss hugs too. And I read somewhere that when you hug, your hearts connect. And as human beings, we need like a minimum of 13 hugs to, to thrive. So that's like how deep that connection is for one another. So I hugs forward. a day. Mm -hmm. Damn. <laughs> I mean, touch starvation is like a real, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. We're so grateful to everyone who keeps giving and making it possible for us to build out more content and release episodes more frequently. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. Thanks. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alani Ran and Mother Cyborg.